Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hi, this is Mark Homer for Mark My Words. I've got Henry Pryor here with me today. He's based in London. He's a buying agent for people who are looking for residential properties, mainly in central London, but around the London area as well. Henry's got a lot of experience, many, many decades, used to work in residential agents, and since then he's been on his own, speaks for the BBC, he's on lots of online and other broadcast media. So here we go, this is Mark Homer interviewing Henry Pryor. Okay, I've got Henry Pryor here, who has got a lot of experience, specifically in the the residential property market, and specifically around London. Henry's been, um, well, in fact, why don't I just ask you, Henry, what, what have you been doing for the last 20, 30 years in residential property? Well, I'm sure everyone would get very bored if I went through my whole CV, but fundamentally, I left school and went with the lure of filthy lucre uh, straight into residential estate agency. Mm. I worked for Savills for 10 years, both in Cambridge when they opened up the office in Cambridge, and then latterly in London in the country house department. Then I went to run Strutton Parker's Country House Department in Hill Street in Mayfair. Then I set up the first of the affiliate groups, um, something called the London Office, was a London office for, still is a London office for about 160 provincial estate agents across the country. About nine years ago, I set up myself as a buying agent. So I'm in the eyes of the law, a estate agent, but I act for buyers rather than for sellers. Hmm, interesting. So I suppose that gives you a, a unique perspective in the market. When you're out there, you're looking at deals, you're looking at purchasing deals. I suppose you really get to see how soft or, or warm the market is and sort of get a feeling of where the market's like to be going. Well, I'm very fortunate in that I get to see probably the same bit of the market as most people. But I tend to concentrate if the residential housing market is uh, a two sided coin. I get to see the other side of it and perhaps to fixate on that slightly more than most. So as many people who are listening to this will appreciate, the vast majority, 99% of what we see, read here in the the media about the housing market and the health of the sales and lettings market comes from people who are either selling something or renting something. They're estate agents, they're mortgage brokers, they're lenders, uh, they're letting agents, they're landlords groups, and they are inevitably and quite understandably optimists. Nobody would instruct a depressed estate agent. No one would want to borrow money from a mortgage broker who, as you're signing the papers in the branch, sucks through their teeth and says, gosh, that's brave. Our analysts think that rates are about to quadruple. But I'm in the fortunate position of being able to see perhaps the, as I say, the other side of the coin, exactly how the reality plays out. Because, as I say, the majority of information that's put out there effectively seems to celebrate rising house prices, rising rents, I am able to provide perhaps a little more of a measured view of the market, not because I have a particular talent, but purely because my perspective is somewhat unusual. So you're the the contrarian of residential sort of London property buying. It would be a fair assessment to assume that I was a contrarian. I'm not out there trying to rebuff or contradict necessarily what is being said either directly in the deals I'm involved in or in the wider media. All I'm able to provide is perhaps 
a little more of a more modest or measured view of the market because what I'm doing doesn't necessarily only work and only survive if I'm optimistic. As I said a moment ago, estate agents have learned a long time ago that they get more instructions if they are more optimistic about things. They are hardwired at birth, if you will, to see their glasses being half full. And because, as I mentioned, clients are unlikely and, and don't tend to reward objectivity quite as much as they reward optimism, we all know, sadly, those of us who are involved in the selling and letting process, that the all too many clients are motivated, it would seem, by the asking price that could be quoted as a rent or as a sale price and how little people are going to charge for the privilege of getting that. So my perspective, as I say, is not necessarily just as it might seem on occasions in the press, purely to have an argument and to have an opposing view just for the hell of it. But it does mean that I'm able to provide perhaps a little more balance. And one of the reasons I have perhaps the absurd public profile, particularly with the BBC, that I get is not because, as I say, of a, specifically of a talent, but it's because the BBC charter requires balance and there are precious few people who would be prepared to go into the Today studio at six o'clock in the morning or on television and talk about perhaps that the market was perhaps a little less robust than some of the regular indices and reports that are put out. And there are even fewer of those people who are prepared to get up at that time of the day. And of those who are, it's surprising how few of them are prepared to then put themselves out there and, and understandably take the brickbats that come as a result. Well, it doesn't benefit their position, I suppose, if they're trying to sell property or they're trying to sell some other service mortgages or legals or, or whatever it is. It, it doesn't help to start depressing things. How many Absolutely. people... If you walk out of the studio, having just suggested that perhaps house prices aren't necessarily a one-way bet any longer, it doesn't take long before your iPhone or your BlackBerry as was would go berserk with clients ringing up and emailing you to disinstruct you or ask you what the hell you were doing. Mm. So as I say, it's not because I have a particular talent or indeed a particular nose for these things. It's just that I'm fortunate mm. enough to be in a position where I can be, I hope, a little more objective about the health of the residential market in a way that others for understandable reasons, on particularly from a commercial perspective, are unable to be. That's really interesting. And I've seen that you comment in a, a lot of different arenas. You're clearly involved with the BBC a lot. Where else do you comment and write for? I'm very fortunate to be in the address books of quite a few property journalists, both on a national and local level. So I do a lot of comment for, as you say, the BBC, both across the nation for the major stations both on radio and tv so bbc breakfast or the today program radio 5 live <laughs> but also across the local network too so that's the local radio stations of which there are roughly 200 across the country all of whom are serving a very important and very uh, eager viewership or listenership who are keen to find out what is actually going on so when it comes to broadcast media there's an awful lot going on there and occasionally even itv and channel 4 are kind enough to solicit my opinions, but then uh, I'd comment for the FT, write pieces for the FT or BuzzFeed and the new online media organisations. And again, I'm afraid if you're reckless enough and don't pay attention and start watching Bloomberg or CNN, the chances are I'm afraid that I might crop up on those as well. Great. So you're out there finding properties for people to purchase and these properties are small, large, they're all different types of property within the mainly London market. What sort of people instruct you and why do they instruct you? 
Well, half my client base are instructed me to deal with properties in London. Half of the properties I deal with are outside London, and there are a smattering from time to time, particularly when it's as hot as it is as we're recording this, who also want help when it comes to finding things perhaps in Tuscany or on the French Riviera, which makes a nice change at this time of year. But fundamentally, I'm instructed by the same sort of people who have the same kind of attitude to getting advice when it comes to selling. As we know, no law in this country that says that you have to instruct an estate agent or retain a letting agent when it comes to selling or letting. And yet we know the vast majority of people, perhaps 95% of people will do so. It is for most people their largest single ticket item. And when it comes to selling, most people like the comfort of having professional advice, even if frequently they seem to ignore it. There is inevitably some advantage in having a third party, a professional dealing with your affairs on your behalf. Property is incredibly emotive, particularly residential property, unlike shops or sheds or offices where people are making perhaps a more commercial objective opinion. When it comes to homes, we know that the value of a property is predicated both on the scientific element of the value, but also on the artistic, the uh, ethereal element of value, the view from the window, the proximity to your friends. These things all make house buying and selling right up there with all the other exciting things in life, like getting divorced or indeed the loss of a loved one. So when it comes to selling, that is why most people are keen to get some professional advice. And sellers have done that for many, many years. More and more buyers have started to see what uh, historically those buying at the very top end of the market have done, which is that getting somebody to represent them, somebody in their corner, likewise gives them the opportunity to focus on the reasons why they're trying to acquire something. It also means that they get access to a significant volume of properties that aren't necessarily advertised on the open market. But we may talk about that in more detail in a moment. But the role of the buying agent is both to understand and to help the client, the buyer or the renter to understand what is possible in amongst their wish list of no doubt a whole heap of items that they would like in terms of utopia. The absolutely perfect house that you want to buy or rent almost certainly doesn't exist. And if it did, almost certainly wouldn't be for sale or available to rent. So they get professional advice to help them find things. They get professional advice from people like me and other buying agents to evaluate the properties. Remember, vast majority of people because they're not doing this on a regular basis, they're statistically only buying once every seven years, renting every two years. They don't have an understanding of the vagaries of the market and how negotiations have, negotiation tactics have changed over time since the last time they were involved in it. And of course, we all know that actually estate agents, by and large, on the selling side are working for and paid for by one party. They're not there to find a mutually uncomfortable deal as perhaps American brokers are trying to broker a deal between two uh, two parties. They're there to represent the interests of one party only, and the law requires them that they should do that. So it's very important as prices and values have increased, many, many more people have established that actually it's wise to take some professional advice over and above the legal advice and perhaps the accountancy advice that one's taking on how one's going to structure the deal, both from a legal and from a financial point of view. Are you saving these people any money? Are you finding them deals? Are they are some of these investments? Or is it more about, I want a home, I want A, B, C, D, because I maybe don't have the time or don't know where to find one of those properties? Well, it's a combination of all of those things. Inevitably, uh, there are a whole stack of properties that aren't formally for sale listed necessarily on Rightmove or Zoopla on the big websites or in estate agencies. These are properties that selling agents have been to see, to pitch for the job, for the instruction, or who know they have the details in their bottom drawer of their desk. 
that if the right person comes along, the client, the owner of that property might be minded to sell. Now, as I said before, statistically, the average punter buys a house every seven years. I'm there to help achieve that calm and measured and professional acquisition of something that most people have a significant emotional stake in. We have to remember, if we look at the other, perhaps the next most controversial and emotional decision that we make, finding a partner in life is a struggle, despite the efforts and endeavours of new technology to provide us with apps that will pick and mix us with the right sort of people across the planet. Nevertheless, we know, I'm afraid. Do, Do you use those apps? I'm not a frequent user of those, and on the basis that the current Mrs. Pryor is within earshot, I'm oh, going to absolutely right. deny that, obviously. I just wanted but, to clear that up. Yeah, yeah. But if we can clarify that that uh, we all know tragically what the divorce statistics look like, that's the, uh, that's the kind of fall-through rate that a significant emotional decision results in for many people, sadly. And when it comes to spending money, again, for an awful lot of people, a large proportion of that money is borrowed from a financial institution and has to be repaid. Statistically, right move tell us that the average deal is agreed roughly 4% below the asking price. Home Track, who monitor probably the vast majority of the market, right move see about 95% of all the properties that come on the open market. But Home Track and institutions like them are able to see across the whole market. They reckon that the average, again, is perhaps 5 or 6% below the asking price. Remember, these asking prices are just arbitrarily set by people who are selling. Mm-hmm. 50% of these homes are never sold. So in order to uh, decide what you should bid for a property, perhaps it's wise and many people seem to be more persuaded of the fact that it would be sensible to take some professional advice. You've got a history of calling different parts of the cycle. Clearly the property market goes through a big cycle. The last one, you could say, uh, in most parts of the country, probably went from about 93 and then finished up somewhere around 07, 08. Where do you think we are in the cycle now? Well, first off, it's important to admit that I don't have a crystal ball. I've got no greater insight or talent than anybody else. Indeed, when we talk about the housing market in the way that we have been so far in this particular recording, we have to remember that I'm not claiming to have a vision that others don't have. And in fact, many of my professional colleagues, particularly those on the sales side, frequently privately agree with my views. It's just that, as we've already established in this conversation, it's very difficult from a business perspective for them necessarily to air it. If you were thinking of instructing an estate agent who publicly on the front page of the Times, as I was quoted just two weeks ago, was talking about the housing market being perhaps a little stickier than we were given to believe when we were looking at the major indices, then understandably you might have a little reticence before you instructed those people. If I look back at the sort of markets and the sort of comments that I've made as the market has fluctuated, you're quite right. It goes, it ebbs and flows, it moves in effectively a sine wave as the pendulum swings between a buyer and a seller's market and equilibrium is established, as I say, roughly every seven years. But if we look now about what the tea leaves are suggesting at the bottom of the cup about where the market is heading now, I think that we are definitely at the peak of the cycle rather than halfway up or halfway down. We're seeing that the market in London, for a wide variety of reasons, some of which we'll talk about in a moment, has come off. Central, prime central London, the top end of the housing ladder, has suffered significant transaction volume falls. You don't have to be particularly clever to understand that these pressures are coming into play. But as I say, in order to verbalise those and to get that information out into the market to those 100,000 people who each month are looking to buy a property, one has to take a view looking at both supply demand And most importantly, on the cost and availability of credit, because it's that that I think drives 
fundamentally house prices. We know that estate agent groups claim to have 10 buyers for every property. We know that at the end of an average month, according to these groups, they've sold six homes, but they've still got roughly 30 homes still for sale. I think we're finding that most people are struggling to afford the current sums that are required in order to buy property. Understandably, it's difficult for money to get considerably more affordable because interest rates are at 360-odd year lows. And as a result, we're starting to find that buyers are pushing back. They're not necessarily just going hell for leather, thinking, oh, well, if I buy it today, it'll be worth tomorrow. We're in that point in the cycle, I think, where buyers are not surprisingly, perhaps, beginning to worry. I wonder what that house will be worth tomorrow, whether indeed it'll be worth less than I could buy it for today. So property is, we're speaking now about property being a market, but clearly property is very segmented according to which area you're in. Property is a local business. You're speaking a lot about Prime Central, and clearly that's come off significantly since 2014. Where do you think the market is in different parts of the country? So let's think of, I don't know, the Midlands or the North, or maybe the South Coast. How do they differ from Prime London? Well, you're quite right. It's really important that we all understand that whilst glibly we talk about average UK house prices or as we did this morning with the publication of the monthly right move asking price index, we're talking about average asking prices across the country. Clearly, um, prices and market conditions vary almost from parish to parish. And it's that that makes up that patchwork quilt of the UK housing market makes it so interesting and and so profitable for those who can understand, read it and act upon that information. When we think about housing, it is staggering. It's not surprising, perhaps, that it is the talk of dinner parties up and down the land and in bars and pubs across the country. It's worth £6.8 trillion. It's the single largest, most valuable asset class in the country. And yet it is played, it's toyed with by politicians as if counted for nothing. When we think about the importance of housing and why we pay such attention to it, it drives the high street economy. People are borrowing money against existing properties in order to go out and spend that money down the high street on white goods or holidays or second homes or funding businesses. And the health of the housing market is vitally important to the UK PLC and to the wider economy. But you ask the question, how has it changed? How does it move compared to central London? Again, we all get caught up, perhaps because a lot of news is generated in central London. We pay a lot of attention to the plight and travails of bankers and oligarchs. But it's running, I think, today down the M4, down the M23, up the M1 to the Midlands. And whilst the same pressures haven't yet got outside the M25 to a a very large extent. They have already got to areas like Ascot and Harpenden and Bishop's Dortford and areas of East Anglia. But it will take another 12 to 18 months before, if you're listening to this and sitting in Shrewsbury or in Norwich, you start to appreciate about what it is I'm talking about. At the moment, that must seem quite bizarre to you that if you own or if you're active in the Manchester market, you might think I've had too much southern sun to be talking about pressures on the housing market generally. But I promise you, having worked through three property recessions in the past, this is how it traditionally works. This is how I expect it to work this time around. I may be wrong, but my experience tells me that it will be perhaps the summer of next year or possibly Christmas in 2018, where the rest of the UK starts to feel and understand and appreciate what is currently happening in London and elements of the South East. But if this has been triggered by, let's say, stamp duty rises and the properties which are suffering the most are those where stamp duty's increased for about 930,000, 
surely the smaller ones aren't as badly affected or, or the lower priced properties, say half a million pound or a hundred thousand pounds if you're further north, surely those are less affected than the stuff over a million pounds? They are less affected and they are not as vulnerable to the sorts of influences that we've been talking about so far in this conversation, but they are interconnected. If you look at the sort of uh, numbers we've got for cash buyers, for example, they've overtaken mortgage finance. We've now got more people living cash free in their homes than we have with a mortgage. We can see that there's a significant percentage, perhaps as much as 40% of each month's transactions are cash-based deals. Now, they're funded frequently out of the spoils of people's previous properties. And if they're doing that, find that they are unable, that the past that they were going to free up some money in order to spend buying a second or third home or a home for children or grandchildren, for example, if that home is not worth what it was because it suffered in the way that, that I've suggested, then they're unable to make the same sort of investments in those smaller, cheaper homes. And it also comes back to the fact that, as I said before, the value of property is not predicated solely on supply and demand. Although we spend an awful lot of time worrying about immigration, talking about the pressures on the green belt, fundamentally, the price of a property is predicated on the availability of credit and how easily people can get that credit. If you give 10 people 50 quid in order to be able to compete for six homes that are for sale, all that happens is that those six homes get sold to six of those buyers who are happy, who've paid 50 quid each more for those properties, because they've used that government assistance to be able to outbid the other four who've still been left behind. But you've still got four people who haven't bought a house. Now, if you remove help to buy, then prices will fall back. If you increase the cost of mortgage finance, then prices will fall back. And if you depreciate or reduce the amount of cash in the system that's able to be deployed to buy properties, then likewise, that will have an impact. And many people who I suspect will be watching this, the sophisticated audience uh, out there who will be listening to what I'm talking about, many shaking their heads going, what is this idiot just saying, perhaps will understand when I draw their attention to yields. Because when it comes to residential property, again, as we mentioned earlier in the piece, we talk about the value of residential property partly being as a result of the artistic elements, location, 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 as Phil and Kirsty will tell us, and about the proximity to your family and friends, the proximity to your job. These are things that I, as a professional value, would find very difficult to put a price on. And the other part of the value, which is the objective, cold-hearted commercial element, which is based specifically on yield. Now, I think that far too many investors in residential property talk about the fact that they're going to buy a property with a view to capital appreciation. They're not too worried, or historically, at any rate, over the last three or four years, haven't been as concerned as I would argue they should be about the yields, talking about the fact that because house prices went up yesterday, they, are, they must go up again tomorrow. I don't think that's a, a sensible way of approaching property investment. I think you should only look at the yield. And when we see what the yields are in London and the southeast, they are in many cases now below 4%. And although I, I'm happy to uh, elaborate further if people would like to know how one gets to it, I think when it comes to residential property, you need to be looking at a 6% or better yield in order for it to make sense, given the illiquid nature of property and the associated costs of sweating that yield out of it. I'm just thinking about your comments there in terms of how things have stepped back significantly in central London and how that 
he's likely to go up the M1 and reach Manchester and likely to go a little bit further. Obviously, we're already feeling some of it in Peterborough and other parts of the Midlands. If we're assuming that property, certainly around, say, Kensington, Chelsea, I don't know, Knightsbridge, started to fall in 2014, we're now three years into that. And if we look back and transpose that onto the previous cycle, I think the previous cycle in those areas, you, you may disagree with me, maybe started around 2010. It probably started to come off in about 07, 08. So my question is, when do you think the prime central London market is going to start to recover and prices are going to stabilise and start to go up again? Because surely it can't be that far away. I'm afraid I think it will be quite a long time away. And the reason for that is because I fear that we've still got some significant headwinds to deal with, or if you'll excuse the mixture of metaphors, some significant icebergs out ahead of us on our route from A to B. And I'll explain why. I still maintain that the biggest threats to the residential housing market in the UK are political interference and social disquiet or social unrest. We've already seen just over the last 18 months there was panic in 2015, wasn't there, when David Cameron and George Osborne were elected at the last general election in the face of a proposed mansion tax from, the, at that time, the Labour Party. Ironically, it turned out that it was a Conservative government who introduced the changes to stamp duty land tax, which benefited the vast majority of people buying homes, but which had a dramatic impact on the transaction numbers and prices of property above a million quid. You'd have to be stunningly stubborn, in my opinion, to think that there isn't a significant likelihood of some major changes to the way that assets like property are treated going forward. Either this country and the electorate have to understand that we are there is no magic money tree and we're unable to continue to live beyond our means. Mrs May and her team got a pretty bloody nose when they suggested that particular element might be the sort of thing they should be warning the electorate of. You may recall the problems with dementia tax, etc. But the alternative is that somebody comes forward with us and says, here's a way that we could afford to continue to fund the health service, for example, or indeed social care and old age. All this long waffle just to make the point and to warn people that you'd have to be staggeringly optimistic about life, not to think that at some point those willowy, weak-willed, spineless politicians are going to deploy a change of tactics in order to get elected next time around and that is going to be yet more pain when it comes to the taxing regime that is deployed for residential property and I'll say one more thing on that. It never came forward in one of the finalised drafts of the Conservative manifesto but I, as far as I'm concerned, there was serious thought given to the position of capital gains tax on people's principal primary residence and it was seriously floated at a very high level that perhaps time had come for that to be removed. Can you imagine the impact of that would have both on house prices and on transactions if that was to come to pass? Do you think they've really got the, the guts to do that? It's not whether they've got the guts to do it. The fact is these politicians can't afford to have the guts to do something and therefore they make gutless decisions in the way that we so often see. The problem for politicians is that if they want to come forward with a manifesto that says we can't continue to give you sweeties, 
then somebody else will pop up and say, don't worry about them, they're just misery guts. I can give you sweeties and you won't have to pay for them either. That's something that we can do and fund probably by hammering the misery guts. We've seen it in this extraordinary result. Labour lost the election 10 days ago, but they do appear in the public mind to have won. An enormous number of people, of our fellow citizens, thought that the record spending that Labour uh, was proposing was something that they wanted a bit of, presumably because the vast majority of them weren't actually going to be the people that picked up the tab. Remember, in the UK at the moment, less than 50% of people pay income tax. The vast majority of people feel students let's look at the student demographic that was played such a, an interesting and probably very important part in the last election most students have never paid for things these are sweeping generalizations and my apologies before i get deluged or hammered on social media for being so derogatory about students but by and large understandably students haven't yet got into the habit of having to spend money or pick up the tab for it because there are processes in place that enable students to defer that whether it's through uh, tuition fees or whatever but these things are going to have to change because Understandably, the electorate aren't very keen on voting for depressing and austere times. The Labour manifesto for the most recent general election would have committed us to the largest public spending of any government since the First World War. Now, where is that money going to come from? To be fair to the Labour Party, it was an incredibly detailed and costly manifesto. It was probably going to be an incremental tax rate for those earning 80, more than £80,000 of 67.5%, according to The Telegraph. Indeed, but that doesn't get you anywhere like the £50 billion the Institute for Fiscal Studies was talking about. And that's why, in the detail, they were looking at other ways of raising money. Now, I'm not making a case for either a change in taxation or, indeed, not no change in taxation. But we know that, for example, when it comes to planning, that whilst the opinion polls tell us a majority of people in this country acknowledge that we need to build more homes, when you ask them the follow-up question, they all decline that they need new homes near them. If I was a single-issue politician at the last election, or indeed the next general election, and I said that I've got one policy that will solve the national housing crisis, I've got no other policies about anything else, defence or health service, anything like that, I'm just going to solve housing. Unfortunately, it might devalue your property and almost certainly will spoil the view from your property. When I ask whether I could count on your vote, my expectation is you'll say no. Could be the case. Could be. Um, <laughs> you think? It could be. I wonder, there's a lot of nimbys about. And, but I well, understandably, and I, and, I, and, I, and I bemoan the fact that we criticise people who don't want things to change. They've invested their hard-earned cash buying properties for the environment and location that they have done so. It's a bid in for a dig for other people to come along and say, in order to solve a problem that wasn't of your making, you've got to budge up. It's a bit like we have with immigration. Lots of people think we should continue to spend such a significant proportion of the national budget on overseas aid, or indeed that we should continue to take immigrants rather than migrants in far bigger numbers than we have done historically. But if you ask them to carve off part of their garden or indeed hand over a bedroom uh, in their house in order to provide accommodation for these people, everybody starts to back off a bit. Lots of people would like a solution to the big national social economic problems, but very few people are prepared to pick up the tab for it. That's the frustration and the, and the difficulty that politicians face. Let's start at the beginning. The election of Corbyn, Donald Trump as president, the outcome of the referendum in the summer last year, all went in a direction that the vast majority of commentators found surprising. 
When you then say, is there a chance that the electorate, particularly the active and rather more engaged younger element of the electorate, are going to say that those whose assets and wealth have increased through no endeavour or action on their part, whether they should continue to enjoy tax-free status, you'll find, I suspect, that some of them will give us what many people will find a surprising answer. Interesting. It's certainly interesting food for thought. Lots of your customers must be high net worth buyers from overseas, and I presume when sterling devalued June 16, you must have seen heightened interest from some of those buyers. How do you see the demand from foreign buyers at the moment, and where is that demand coming from mostly? This is information that's put out inevitably by people who are selling things once again. We see these reports coming in from estate agents who are keen to get instructions to sell shiny developments along the south bank of the River Thames and elsewhere. We know that whilst lots of overseas-based individuals have bought property in the past for reasons that we may or may not go into in more detail, this view that because UK property or indeed London property in particular has become that much cheaper as a result of the currency changes that came as a result of the referendum last June is a myth. My experience of wealthy foreigners is that they're as careful with their money as Brits with money. They don't go out and, and recklessly buy things just because they've had a kick on the currency. Not only do they want the advantage of the devalue of the sterling that that has offered in terms of a flat in Fulham or an apartment in Manchester, they also want a share of the pain that they understand is now coming into parts of the residential housing market in the UK, and they want a, a bit of that too. It's still a risk, the overseas buyer's market, in terms of the UK housing market, but they're not here in anything like the volumes that you might have come to think, having read some of the headlines over the last 12 months. So earlier on, we spoke, or you mentioned Help to Buy, the government scheme that helps first-time buyers or, or specifically people who are looking at lower-end new builds to purchase. It helps with the financing of it, reduces the deposit size. I know lots of developers are still selling well. If you look at the numbers coming out of, I don't know, Persimmon or some of the other more sort of volume builders that build the smaller, more kind of identikit type homes. The, the numbers still look quite good. I suspect an element of that is because they're selling through help to buy. How much influence do you think that is having on the, the low end of the market at the moment? Far too much influence. Help to buy is the property industry's equivalent of, of raw cocaine. And whilst there was a very, very real need to get lenders back out lending money after the credit crunch in 2007-2008 and with due respect and credit to the government at the time, the coalition government at the time, that they were able to encourage lenders to get back out there and lend. It is not a policy, in my opinion, that should have continued and it's certainly not a policy that should have been extended to the end of, the, to the end of 2020 and if anybody of any influence or with any common sense were able to do something as a result of listening to my entreaties, please, please, can we vote to stop this continued ramping of house prices artificially because at some point the tap will need to be turned off. At that point, the most recent people, arguably the most vulnerable people, will have bought at what will then be an artificially inflated price. We've seen, as you rightly say, an staggering impact on house builders' share prices. We've got the chief executives and higher management of these firms earning obscene amounts of money 
purely as a result of the inflated prices that buyers have been able to pay. It's not necessary. There's no need for it. Lenders are quite happy to lend. The competition amongst lenders has got back to where we like it to be, where, where people are offering deals, and in some cases perhaps offering slightly too attractive deals. We don't need the government to stand behind it, and I'm afraid the longer they do, the bigger the headache hangover will be when eventually, as inevitably it must, be pulled. Henry, it's been really interesting to, to talk to you and get to know you. Have you got anything else you'd like to add for my listeners? Your listeners are, are different from the majority of people who are accidentally tuning in to listen to me when I'm talking on the radio or on the TV. Your listeners are more sophisticated by and large. They know what they're doing. They know their business and they've got some experience of doing so. But I would just urge people to remember that the vast majority of people who buy properties in the UK are doing so from the heart rather than with their head. Now, that's good when sentiment perhaps is bullish and when prices are robust and when market sentiment is positive. But unfortunately, that herd mentality when things go wrong, as we've seen in previous property recessions, means that the pendulum will swing too far rather than just a correction that may arguably be overdue in some parts of the country. When that happens, if you own property or if you're buying property or if you're doing up property, if you're involved in the UK housing market, understanding and appreciating that we will inevitably overshoot when the correction comes is something that will help ensure that those people who are listening to this who've got exposure to the market are unlikely to make quite such a big mistake as those who stupidly, foolishly aren't yet subscribing to this excellent podcast. That's very kind of you, Henry. I mean, I'd like to add something to that. I certainly, in the last year, 18 months, have noticed that there's quite a big opportunity there. If we're looking at low-end units, certainly the stuff that, that yields well, which a lot of my listeners would be purchasing, you know, we're talking stuff that yields at 7 8 9%. Or maybe they're doing, you know, multi-family stuff that yields 15% plus. On those kind of units at the low end, older stuff, maybe terraces that, that require refurb, they're able to buy them probably 10-15% below where the sort of average selling price might be. If we rewind two, three years ago, that was completely impossible because, you know, there were bids coming in from all sorts of directions and the market was more buoyant. So Actually, for people buying and for most of the people that I talk to and certainly a lot of listeners on this podcast, this is a golden time to purchase. You're absolutely right. I can't remember a better time in my 28-year career to, to buy a property. The opportunities are huge and the impression that I will inevitably accidentally have left with some people is that I'm bearish about life. I, I think there are some massive I did, I did get that feeling, Henry. I did get I, that I'm, feeling. I'm a, I, I cannot tell you, I'm hugely optimistic about what the market will offer those who have set themselves up to take advantage of those opportunities. There will be many people, a lot of listeners to this podcast, who will, in the next 12 to 18 months, lay down their future property fortunes. I've absolutely no doubt. My concerns are, for those who have grown up over the last perhaps 10 or 20 years thinking that property is a one-way bet, that buying and selling is like falling off a log, that you can somehow stick it on a, an app on a mobile phone and that you can transact accordingly. Those people are naive. Those people are the cannon fodder who will get trampled on. And the people that have got involved most recently will lose, and they will lose a significant amount of money, possibly even their livelihoods. 
Those are the people who will make a mistake, but the savvy, the well-prepared investor, the person who understands how the market operates, I think, may well end up making their property fortune. Henry, it's been really interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you very, very much for coming along and, and giving us your insights. That has been Mark Homer and Henry Pryor for Mark My Words.